0: Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled dot lcom slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of Benched with Bubba. This is episode 22, another baseball edition This episode, I am joined by the one and only good buddy that I have developed over the Twitter, the one and only Yancey Eaton. You can find him on two podcasts, uh, Baseball, Dear Mr. Fantasy, and a new one that he's developed uh, for the pop culture people out there, Pop Goes Your World. You can find him on Twitter, at Yancey Eaton. Yancey, thanks for joining me. How are you doing tonight?
2: Uh, We were just talking off air. I've never been better. I just started vacation. Um, I just had pizza. I'm drinking a couple beers. We get to talk baseball. Um, yeah, I, I think you're selling a little short. Like you and I, we're we're friends on Twitter, but we're not like casual friends. We've literally had like a a Twitter like a group Twitter DM for what like a year and a half now, where we basically talk nonstop every single day. Um, I actually give you a lot of credit because my favorite alcoholic drink of all time now is DiSorono with coffee, which you recommended, <laughs> which really? my wife doesn't appreciate because like I literally buy that stuff like you know at least once a week, whatever. But it's it's delicious, but. I am so happy. Like we're still what like a month and a half away from actual baseball. But like it feels like it's so close just because like we're dying for, for news for something to happen. But I'm I'm just excited. Any anytime I can like break off these like these little chunks of time by actually like talking baseball with people, dude, I'm I'm like completely on board. But what's new with
1: you, man? Oh, uh, not much. I've been so jazzed. You've been connecting me with people to talk to about fantasy. I've just uh, like you said, we've been in group chats, and we just we talk every day about baseball and other sports, and I can talk baseball forever. I know you can talk baseball forever, and uh, your, your group, your network of people is, is vast, and I, I appreciate your connections there. And um, it's been great. I've been looking forward to this. We've been talking about it forever. And um, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I know we're going to do more of these in the future, and um, this is going to be a lot of fun. And for those of you that have listened to Yancey's podcast and he talks about recording in a shed, he's not lying to you. He's in a shed. <laughs> it's impressive stuff here. But and, uh, uh, I appreciate Yancey being here. This is going to be a good time, a really good time. And um, he's very, very knowledgeable when it comes to the fantasy world. And I'm looking forward to uh, picking his brain here on uh, some topics. And um, we'll kick it off. We'll do some strategy talk before we dig into his team, the Rays. And um, I'm asking a lot of my guests similar questions just so every listener can kind of get a feel because I have a lot of new fantasy listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, you were in an auction league with me last year. It was my first auction league, and I told my, my last guest, David, that I was nervous because I know a lot of people get nervous getting in an auction league because it's, it's intense. It gets way different. And um, when you're doing your auction – how do you decide when to throw players up how do you price enforce kind of what's your auction strategy um so this is kind of like a
2: really loaded question because I, I don't think if you go into an auction with a set strategy in mind and you are you stick to it the entire auction I don't think you're setting yourself up for success you need to be able to adapt and quickly recognize if players are going to go at market value kind of what, like what the industry values them at or if you're going to see like your' You know, a lot of people employing like a stars and scrub sh- strategy where they're they're paying top dollar for like the most elite premium players like a Kershaw or a Mookie Betts or if everybody's trying to save money and that type of thing. I've been in so many auctions bubble where um, I was like, oh, you know what? This is only a $30 player. I'm not going over $30. And at the end of the draft, I had $25 left. And it's like I really wish I would have gotten the extra two or three dollars and had more of these elite players. Like you'll see in, in, in any auction draft, or I keep calling it draft, but it's it's just an auction. In the auction, you have people who are going to uh, they're going to have a roster completely of stars and scrubs. They're going to have two or three elite players, and they're going to have a bunch of kind of role players or maybe platoon players. They might have two or three bench spots where like they alternate them in like a daily lineups league. Um, that's that's a pretty common strategy. That's one I use a lot. Um, or you'll have somebody who were like literally they have a a, a whole team filled with nothing but ten or fifteen dollar players, which is also fine. But um, in my personal opinion, I think that building a team like that it gives you a really nice floor. But you're basically looking at like a fifth place team. You need to have some of those extremely high upside players hit in order for that to be any kind of like feasible strategy. I don't know about you, Bubba, but like whenever I whenever I join a league, I want to finish in first place. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think people get too cute sometimes with prospects with. Uh, sleeper picks that you know their their draft value is is so inflated in preseason, you know, because of people like us talking about them or like a fan graphs or baseball prospectus hyping up individual players. Like this year it's James Paxton, it's Keon Broxton. Those two players are getting elevated at such high levels right now that um there's no value built into them. You know, so I I try to avoid when it comes to auctions like the death traps that are overspending on really trendy players. I try to have at least two or three studs in my in my You know, in my squad or whatever, I normally want like, um, if it's a rotisserie league, I want absolute category fillers. Like, uh, I will reach more for like a Christian Yelich, somebody who can hit home runs and steals, as opposed to like one trick ponies, like a you know, like a Billy Hamilton or something. Um, uh, But the main takeaway, I know I'm kind of bouncing around a lot. The main takeaway with auction is you have to pay attention to what players are getting bid up, uh, how much, as far as like a percentage goes, are they going over like what the industry says or what your auction values are, and you have to adjust on the fly. Um, if you see every single elite player is going over what you initially had as, you know, in like your auction calculator or anything like that, you need to adjust and don't be left holding the bag. Like there's no worse feeling, like I said, than ending a draft or ending an auction and having money left over. It's just it's, it's an absolute death knell on your on your season. So um, what is your experience though with, with auctions overall? Like, I mean, versus like a standard snake draft, do you prefer them or is that something that you you for the most part kind of avoid?
1: Yeah, well, first I was going to say that was very, very good advice because I noticed that last year is, I went in there and I, I, I printed out a sheet of estimated values you should target, and I remember I sat down sitting, okay, I'm not going to, you know, change. I'm going to stay focused, and then they start just throwing people out, and like you said, you have to adjust. And um, next thing you know, I, I ended up with Trout, Bryant, and I think McCutch and my first three players. And I spent a little over those numbers, but then I had three studs right out the gate. Mm-hmm. And I think I finished second or third. It was Brock's league. And if I wouldn't have had those three guys, I I had no chance because the rest of my guys were all mediocre kind of fillers, like we talked, like you were saying. And if I just had other fillers with those, I would have money left over, no chance of winning the league, period. Right. And that's,
2: that's
1: never people- what happened.
2: Another thing people forget, too, is, um, you know, I talked with Mike Janelle a couple, maybe two, three days ago on Twitter about this, where, like, you know, say you're you're basically, like, price enforcing a player. Like, you're noticing all these players that should be going for a lot more than they are, say they're going super cheap, and you're the guy that's, I, I am this guy, too. I'm kind of like the price enforcer in auctions where I'm constantly bidding up to make sure that, like, you know, not everybody's going to ton of value on their team because I don't want that to screw me at the, the, the later portions of the round or of the auction or whatever. I'm the type of person where, like, I will bid them up. And guess what? If you end up paying one or $2 more for like a Nolan Arenado or Chris Bryant or Mike Trout, what is the consolation? You still get one of the best players in fantasy baseball. Like, you know, the auction isn't like who got the most value out of every single player. It's who scores the most points, who wins the most categories. That's who wins. Um, So I'm more likely to be a price enforcer when it comes to auctions on the elite players than I am like, like I said, the really trendy sleeper picks that like I, you know, those are my boys that, you know, in my pre-draft process, I was willing to reach on type of thing. I want if I'm going to be price enforcing, it's going to be on the elite bats. Like I'm, go, I'm going hard on Mookie bats. I'm making sure that he's not going for less than thirty five dollars. I'm making sure that you know Bryce Harper in a rebound isn't going for less than thirty five dollars. You see, what I'm saying there's just there's a lot of strategies, there's a lot of takeaways in auction drafts and stuff. But I just don't want people to be married to any one strategy going into it. Like you have to adjust and you have to pay attention.
1: And that's great advice right there. How you separated it, price enforcement. That's kind of what I was, I wanted to get at is. Because um, a lot of people mention that term when it comes to auctions, price enforcement. But you specified right there, enforce it on the big names. Because if you do get stuck with that player, like you said, wouldn't you rather get stuck with the Mookie Betts and Mike Trout instead of the James Paxtons and the Billy right. Hamilton? Does? There's a right. big, big difference there. And and that, that that's that's kind of what I was getting at when we we're talking strategies. Because like you said, you do have to be able to bob and weave and adjust, but there is there is a balance of strategy still to be played and it's yeah, a chess
2: game dude seriously like if yeah. a, if a traditional snake draft is you know you, you playing checkers i mean auctions really are playing chess it is it's a lot more complex you have to pay attention um i mean if you spend a lot of money early like it's really hard to kind of become complacent and kind of sit back and wait for the draft to kind of catch up with you so that you can actually start bidding on players and stuff again but you have to pay attention you know and one last thing before we move on to a different topic, but like think about like last year, if you were enforcing uh, like Bryce Harper, if you're Bryce enforcing him, right? Yeah, he had a really disappointing season, but he still hit 20 home runs. He still sold bases. If you're in an OBP league, he still had a monstrous on-base percentage, right? You had a, a nice skill set to fall back on. If you got caught price enforcing on a really trendy sleeper pick that everybody was on, like, a say, a a Iglesias, you got screwed. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It always exactly. pays to to go after the, the big players. I mean, the fail rate is just so much lower on, on players like that.
1: Okay, one last question on the auction is um, when you go to throw out your players for different strategies... Do you throw out a player you want, or are you throwing out players you're trying to get rid of so people spend their money?
2: Um, For the most part, at the beginning of the draft, people are always going to be more gung-ho spending at the beginning of the draft. So, like, everybody knows I have my guys. I have dudes that I love. You know, I love Chris Archer, not just because he plays for the Rays, although it helps. You know, I love Corey Dickerson, even though he's like a dollar player. Um, but like other players that aren't necessarily like the most elite of players, but players that I know if I just wait for the first two or three waves of players to go through, I know I can get them at a discount. So like, uh, I'm trying to think of a player I'm really high on this year, Lance McCullers. Okay. Lance McCullers is not going to be one of the first 10 or 15 players that I nominate or, and then I hope that nobody else does because... You know, he is a middling pitcher who is, I think, poised for a breakout. But why am I going to pay a premium on that? If he is the first player that I nominate, the chances of me getting him for 3 or $4 is essentially zero. There is, you know, every single owner in that auction is completely engaged in this draft. They're paying attention. They know, you know, hey, this is a name, whatever that I'm looking forward to. And they don't have to make any tough decisions because everybody has their full budget. So for me, at the beginning of auctions, I'm always looking to throw out players that I'm hoping other people bid up on. And then once the, the draft, I'm telling you, it's like a chess game, dude. You, you constantly have to think about, you know, two moves ahead, look on other players, you know, their, their, their team construction, see what players they need. If you know, hey, they, there's only two or three elite first baseman left and he doesn't have one, wait till you throw that one out there. Wait till he spends some more money to where you can get players like that. Like, always be thinking ahead. Auctions are completely different than snakes. You always have to be proactive. You always have to be looking at team composition and how many players left at each position. It's just, it's a completely different
1: animal. Yeah. And that's another strategy right there. I love how you phrased that, how they like to spend early. If you want to get that player a little cheaper, save them a little later. Like you said, it's a whole chess game and I love that. And you just got me really excited about potentially getting an auction lead because my first one last year, it, it took the scare away from it. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it helps. I've played fantasy for years now. So I felt mm-hmm. comfortable with the player pool and all that, but um I, as a diehard baseball guy, I really, really enjoyed the aspect of putting a team together that way, especially with all of the, the, the money aspects of it. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Can I give you one more piece of advice just to your listeners?
2: Yeah. Say, say you like a player and yeah. it's a it's a it's a late game player type of thing, like a one or two dollar player. And this is at the stage of the auction where everybody is basically like counting each individual dollar. They're trying to fill out the rosters they've overspent or they're, they're this is the very end of the draft. If you really like a player and you can go the $2, it makes so much more sense to nominate a player for $2 as opposed to 1 because if you make it 2 or I'm sorry, if you make it $1 and somebody bids you up a dollar, you're basically committed to paying $3 for a player. Whereas if you just go ahead and go the $2, people are so less inclined to bid you up at that $3 price point. It sounds stupid, but there's a lot of psychology there. It's just like You know, it's like major retailers pricing something 99 cents instead of a dollar. The same thing goes with like a $2 bid versus a $1 bid. So just like keep that in mind whenever you're in your auctions in the late rounds, you can get a $2 player that maybe would have gone for three or four by not throwing him out there for a dollar and throwing him out for two.
1: The genius that is Yancey Eaton folks right there. That is, that is genius right there. That makes total sense. You're you're crazy. (laughs) All right, we'll move on to the next one here. Uh, This is a quick one. Do you prefer rotisserie versus
2: head-to-head? Um, when I first started playing years ago, I actually preferred the head-to-head. And I think the reason why was because I always started playing fantasy football first. And it was the closest uh, proxy to fantasy football to me. So, like, there was li- there was less of a learning curve, essentially. But um, it's kind of weird because, like, now as I play more and more, I... I've kind of gone back to, like, the traditional Roto, at least with, like, Saber categories, like, you know, net saves plus holds or quality starts up wins or on-base percentage versus average. I think just because it keeps you so much more engaged as to uh, just each individual player, what they're specifically good at, whereas in head-to-head points, it's a lot easier to go to your fantasy site and go to players and look at top players and just go by overall fantasy points. You see what I'm saying? I understand that head-to-head points fully encapsulates everything that a player is good at. It takes into account strikeouts, it takes into account sack flies and hit by pitches, everything like that. Um, I just think from a strategy and from like a planning perspective, it's just so much more fun. It's so much more strategic to play rotisserie leagues over head-to-head. But I get, I get the appeal for head-to-head leagues. I think, I think I'm in eleven or twelve fantasy leagues, <laughs> which is a lot. I, I said I would pare down this year, but like I keep, it's hard to turn down a draft. Um, but I think out of like the 11 or 12 that I'm committed to, I think like maybe eight or nine of them are head to head points leagues, just cause people love playing points. Anytime I'll ever commit to a league and I'll be like, yeah, man, that sounds good. Send me the invite and then I'll click on it and I'll look, it's a head to head points league. So, um, I enjoy both. Uh, but I think the traditional five by five or six by six Roto is, is, is probably my favorite variant of uh, fantasy baseball.
1: Yeah. Uh, I was the same way the head to head, um, uh... It's how I started because I think, like you said, it's the kind of transition from fantasy football. But I prefer the rotisserie format. It's the most pure, I think, um, I guess, way to grade your overall team throughout the season is the way I look at it. Um, Now, you mentioned the on-base percentage is the OVP. Do you prefer that switch now from average? I know a lot of leagues are doing that. Um, Do you prefer that over the average as as a statistical category?
2: I do I mean you got to think about certain players um I'm trying to think of a good example there are players who have sometimes 75 or hundred point difference between their, their batting average and their own base percentage in real yeah. life, getting on base has value in, in a standard five by five league with average, a player who is constantly getting on base has next to no value at all. If they're not hitting home runs or hitting doubles, you know, if they don't have gap power, that type of thing. I mean, Joe, excuse me, Joey Votto is like, you know, one of the best players in baseball. If you just look at his way to runs creative plus and just how often he gets on base and what he does from a run creation standpoint, he's immensely valuable. But baseball fans for years, for decades, we've been trained that, you know, home runs and, you know, driving in runs and and sack flies and that type of thing. That is the most important thing in baseball. But that's not true at all. Like simple math can tell you a player who gets on base should be rewarded because that is actually what wins games. Winning games is in scoring runs. A player who gets on base always does. So I, uh, I I teeter back and forth on here between like the traditionalist as far as fantasy baseball goes, but like with with minor tweaks like i said like i just don't like saves i like net saves plus holds like i think yeah. if you are like a fernando rodney who's going to blow 12 saves this year i think that that should be affected somehow as far as like saves go you shouldn't be able to just bank the saves that you made and not have to suffer from you know blown saves same goes with on base percentage versus average you know, if you are somebody like a Curtis Granderson who has an atrocious, you know, he might bat 225 this year, but he might also have, you know, an above league average on base percentage just because he draws so many walks like that counts in real life. I think should count in fantasy baseball, too.
1: No, I completely agree. I know Nathan Dawkin uh, from the Nasty Cast. He mentioned uh, recently, like a guy like Miguel Stano, he had a low average, but uh, great on base percentage because he walks quite a bit. Yep. This, so there's a guy, another example. I love um,
2: Nate, too, by the way. That's another one of my boys. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, if, if things stay correct, he may be joining me on Monday, talking Minnesota Twins. Oh, very um, nice. When this has been a debate year in and year out, and forever it was it was a big no-no across the industry, quote-unquote industry. With the switch from, you know, not as many power bats kind of a equality among you know 20 to 30 home run bats and you're starting to see more people willing to do it how early do you take pitching
2: uh see this is this is something that's changed over the last two three years every single year like the consensus opinion on on where you're taking pitching changes last year it was all about like oh you have to take one within the first three picks you have to you have to you have to um i did not elicit that strategy for the most part like i was still going really really heavy on hitters um i don't know this year it looks like we're we have such a small tier of like elite starting pitchers who don't have any like legitimate issues or concerns as far as like their performance or injury injury history or you know home ballpark that type of thing i mean just looking at like the starting pitchers like if you look on fantasy pros let me pull it up real quick Uh, fantasy pros consensus adp right so you have kershaw at six scherzer at 13 mad bum at 16 uh Thor at 19 and Sale at 20. So you have just a hint. You have what, six pitchers in the top 20 or five pitchers in the top 20? And then 12 pitchers overall are going in the top 50. Um, 12 overall in the top 50. I mean, that's, that's not like it's a lot, but the drop-off is so steep from that top tier of pitchers. Um, and then you have this gigantic middle tier. Um, like I said, like the Lance McCullers and the Julio Tehrans and the Jake Oda Rizzi's and Carlos Rodons. There are so many names like that that are basically completely indiscernible between the two of them and there's so much variance as far as what their total outcome can be as far as you know production goes where i think it's actually justified taking somebody like uh you know like a thor in the second round just because i mean the 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 floor is so so high and the separation that you can get versus this this small handful of elite pitchers versus the rest of the field is so massive that i i think that the the, the cutoff between the elite starting pitchers versus the second and third tiers is greater than than the discrepancy between the first round hitters versus the second and third round hitters. Like this year, there are seven hitters who are consensus top seven hitters. After that, it's interchangeable. Like there's a lot of question marks. Like, do we want to make Trey Turner a first rounder? You know what I mean? Like, what are we doing with him? What are we doing with a uh, Joey Vado? You see what I'm saying? Like, you know, two years ago, Joey Vidal barely hit 20 home runs. Like, I understand, like, he's one of the best players in baseball, but, like, there are so many worse with these pitchers in the second round, or I'm sorry, with these hitters in the second round, that, like, I do think it's warranted to take one of these elite starting pitchers and just bank that elite production. And like I said, with somebody like a Scherzer, somebody like with a Kershaw, the ratios and the strikeouts that you're going to get are so much greater than anything else out there. I mean, you can't pick this up on the wa- the waiver wire. You can't trade for, I mean, who's, who's trading you mid season for a Kershaw. You see what I'm saying? Unless you're in a complete rebuild and like a dynasty or a keeper league, it's just not going to happen. Um. So like right over versus head to head. I mean, Rotisserie, I, I honestly don't even mind you taking in a redraft league, taking Kershaw number one. I don't mind that. I don't mind Max Scherzer as being a top 10 pick. I, I honestly don't. I mean, the the buffer that you get as far as ratios and stuff goes is just out of this world. From head to head, obviously pitching dominates head to head points leagues, anyways. Um, So you're taking you know the top ten, you might take three or four pitchers in the top ten. That's that's the same in year in year out. But I think the biggest change we're going to see is these elite, this top five or six pitchers going in the first round. I think that's going to be like the the norm for the next two to three years if the strikeout rate league wide doesn't adjust.
1: Just like you last year, I wasn't buying the whole, you have to take one early. I still held off, got my, my bats and I waited until around, you know, five or six. Like I always did. I started yeah. loading up and, and, uh, I started seeing it wasn't quite like it used to be. And, um, I, I, I started already doing my research. Now I'm starting to, just like you were saying, I might have to start making my adjustments now and, it's because uh, there's it, as you as people start doing the research and looking at rankings and ADPs and everything, there are a ton of bats after the elite ones like you're talking about that are so much alike. It's really, it's, it's the need isn't there that it's worth taking that elite pitcher like you're saying and locking right. that up. You're not going to find that anywhere else, like you said. It's crazy. I will
2: say this with them um, with like rotisserie leagues where ratios count where you know. Whip is a category and, you know, strikeouts and innings pitch and stuff. That's something that you constantly have to monitor. Um, If you don't get one of those elite, elite guys, I can say that like there are strategies that I've always used where like, I like to use starting pitcher tandems where I basically put pitchers in, in kind of like buckets, right? Where like, say you have a Kyle Hendricks, he has like a career eight, eight Ks per nine, right? So he's not an elite strikeout guy. He doesn't, he doesn't even have a strikeout printing, which is fine, but he's going to give you a ton of help as far as, uh, you know, your ERA is gonna be fantastic. Your whip is gonna be super low. So I like pairing him with somebody like a Carlos Rodon, right? Carlos Rodon, mm-hmm. you know, over his career, I think he's at like nine and a half Ks per nine. And I still think there's a ton of upside there for him to have 10, 11 ks per nine. I really do. I think a breakout's coming. Um, you know, he posted a one three nine whip last year, which is obviously terrible. But when you when you pair him with Kyle Hendricks, you have a really, really useful starting pitcher. You know, I mean, just those ratios with the K upside, a really, really high floor. I mean, it's just that's the type of thing where you can kind of cheat having, you know, not an elite elite starting pitcher and you can still get by and, you know, be serviceable, will be top three, top four in each category and, and kind of give yourself a better chance. So if you're loading up on hitters like that, like I said, I would never pair like a Carlos Rodon with uh, another really like, say like a Blake Snell who I'm high on, but rarely pitches over six innings has a really, really high whip. I'm not looking to take two or three of those guys in the same rotation. I want more of the steady kind of like a Jose Quintana guy paired with a really high strikeout guy, you know, to pair with kind of like counteract the the wit problems and the, you, you see what I'm saying? It's like it's it's constantly yeah. like this marriage between the, the pick you made before needs to affect the pick
1: you make right now. Well, yeah, you could get a guy like um your buddy and the guy started following he's a great follow people Matt Modica um he, he yep he tweeted out the other day Ian Kennedy has the best K through nine or the third best K through nine in baseball in like the last like. Uh, or the most K's in baseball in the last three years or third best or something crazy. Like, yeah. So you got a guy like that. You're saying you match him up with a a Hendricks and you you could have gotten Kennedy almost your last pick of the draft. (laughs) He's
2: basically free. Yeah, exactly. I don't and see See, uncovering little gems and stuff like that. That is the key to just really, really savvy plays like that, where you're not Mm -hmm. paying a premium for every single position Mm -hmm. You, I mean, that allows you to have bench depth. That allows you to have multiple starting pitchers that you don't have to count on. Like, yeah. if you can go seven or eight deep in like a rotisserie league of really just quality starting pitchers, and like I said, having that built-in floor as far as like WHIP goes, with innings pitch goes. I mean, seriously, stuff like that, little nuggets like that, is like the difference between you being like a sixth place team and being like a second or first place team. I love that shit. I love. I'm sorry, I said I don't know if, I, if I can I'm cuss on this it, podcast, but feel free, feel
1: free.
2: but uh he's honestly one of the best he's he's been on my show a couple of times uh just that type of deep diving and and, and looking at certain players and, and put like i said putting them in buckets and seeing what they're good at and then pairing them with somebody else who may lack in another department but having two skill sets complement each other uh just like a starting pitcher tandem i think is super super valuable
1: yeah that is phenomenal advice right there that is digging deep digging deep well here's another one you can dig deep on if you like um As you said, things are kind of evening out in the offensive departments. So when you're approaching your draft, um, it's kind of a tough one, I guess, kind of a loaded question now. Like when you're you're approaching your draft, how do you value or how do you approach the power and steals department? Because you can't really approach average too much. You can, but you can't because you can't really dictate that to an extent. But you can kind of depend on certain power and steals numbers. So how do you dictate your uh, people?
2: Uh, when it comes to steals, so it's this has been pretty advertised, like, industry-wide. Everybody knows this. Power is way up. We, we saw a huge spike in power last year, and speed is down, right? So the natural inclination is to reach for speed guys, like speed-only guys like a Jared Dyson or, you know, a Billy Hamilton. Just um, three leagues, I think that the gains you make in stolen base-only players is quickly mitigated by just on-base percentage, their batting average, their low runs scored, I mean, you know, if Billy Hamilton half the time is batting eighth or ninth what value, does that serve with you? If he has like, a, you know, if he's literally batting 250 or 260, that does nothing. All of the gains you make in stolen bases is completely wiped out because he's an optimal op- offensive player. Um, I like using players like a Christian Yelich, like I mentioned earlier, where they can chip in double-digit steals and double-digit power. Um, people like a Charlie Blackman, who does both things, a Starling Marte, a Gregory Planco. Those are the types of guys that I'm reaching for. Um, I remember a few years ago, not to like call anybody individually, but Mike Podhorser for Fangraphs in an industry league. I can't remember if it was Labor, but he drafted Billy Hamilton. Uh, I think this is in 2014 or 2015. And his justification was that he essentially locks up an entire category, which is true, but that's just one So you locked up 10% of the maximum number of points that you can possibly score because of one category. Whereas if you had taken, like I said, uh, Christian Jelic in the third round, if you took a Starling Marte at the time in like the sixth or seventh, you could have still taken first in that category and not had to give up all those gains and bad. Or, you know on base percentage or run scored so um my main thing this year is i do not want to overreact to the, the uh, stolen base totals last year and i also don't want to overreact to the massive spike in home runs in a season where like freddie galvis can hit 20 home runs i'm not looking to <laughs> i mean power is the one thing that is readily available on the waiver wire so i'm going to focus more on guys who consistently make hard contact have a- and I'm not going to I'm not going to be that guy that drafts Billy Hamilton in the third round. I'm just not doing it.
1: Yeah, and that's something I kind of mentioned. I just uh, typed up my outfield rankings part one today that's, uh, that we're putting up for our website. And I mentioned that you look around the industry, especially in the outfield, um, most ADPs are showing you the value of the people that produce the steals, like your Yellicks, your Marques, your Charlie Blackmans, for one. They're way up on the ADPs right now because they give you multiple categories. Um, given this year, Hamilton's a little higher because he's moved to the top of the order. He actually showed he can get on base for once. But in years past, I agree with you 1,000% on that. But, um, yeah, I've never been a fan of I, – I, I've always chuckled at guys that draft that one. one guy goes, oh, he just got me every steel category, but he's going to bat 230 and not do anything else. Right. Um, I mean, makes no sense at
2: all. I can understand it if you're taking a Billy uh, Hamilton in the 10th round, but like I've seen people reach for Billy Hamilton, yes. like in points leagues and points leagues, Billy Hamilton is almost useless. Like he, he should literally be like a 21st okay. round pick. Like, I'm not kidding. Like if you're not trying to lock up a category, I don't understand why you're taking players like that. Who just optimal offensively and, and basically every single category. I mean, there's no merit to drafting them at all in points league. So like, Another little piece of information, like know your know your scoring and your the formats for how you acquire points, and basically hack that. Find out the most optimal way to get the easiest amount of points and, and like the cheapest way possible. That's what you should be looking to do. But like Billy Hamilton, like seriously, like reassess. Like if you're drafting, if you have Billy Hamilton like four or five of your teams, like I want you to take a really really good hard look at yourself and reevaluate your process. That's 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 my main takeaway from the the whole speed the speed epidemic that's going on right now.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, there's definitely ways to approach it. Like you said, if it's later in the draft, I totally get it. But there's also tons of guys you can go for later in the draft to get steals. You mentioned that Keon Roxton will give you some steals later. There's other guys you can look at later in the draft for these needs. Um, you don't have to go chasing them early in your draft. Um, right. And definitely when it comes to the power, like we said already, there's a ton of, 15, 20, almost even some 25 homer guys you can go grab later in your draft. A lot of them at the corner infield positions and outfield. No need to be chasing certain stats early on. One thing I'm curious about, I asked David the other day, and it's kind of a personal preference. You're seeing it all over the place. There's early spring injuries everywhere. Right. How much, how much do you factor them in? I know it's like you get a paper cut and they're going to sit you out for three days. Um, when do you start to factor these into your actual kind of getting worried?
2: Um, so I have this, I don't know, it's kind of like this like rough, like sketched outline basically of, let let me preface this by saying that I'm not a doctor, I'm not a, a, a medically trained professional. Um, but there's been a lot of work done as far as like injuries and stuff by, you know, Russell Carlton of Fangraphs, I'm sorry, Russell Carlton of BP, Jeff Zimmerman of Fangraphs, uh, where they basically talk about like the correlation between a specific type of injury versus how much time they actually spend on the disabled list. So like there are certain injuries where when I hear them, especially if it's like the very beginning of spring training, or, you know, just open workouts and stuff like that, where I completely dismiss it. If they have a, if they have like a strained oblique, that's, Fine, I'm not worried about that. If they're recovering from thoracic outlet syndrome, however, that is a, a really really red flag for me. If they are like a, a an Adrian Beltre where he has calf injuries, like a soft injury, you know concerns or soft injury tissues, that type of thing, that's kind of something I'm a little bit more hesitant about. If they have a severe hamstring, you know tear or a strain, that's something that can literally linger all season long. So I'm not saying like you need to take you know anatomy 101, but knowing the the severity of certain injuries over others. Like if a player, uh, a pinky strain, basically like, you know, that that's not incredibly major. Um, if you're talking about like Max Scherzer, who all off season has been dealing with this fracture in his ring finger, it seems like it's a minor setback. I think it's going to be a minor setback, but am I going to monitor that, you know, all during spring training? Like he hasn't even started throwing yet. So that is something that I'm going to be looking forward to. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't want to overvalue or, or or make a bigger deal out of injuries than they really are. But like I said, if a guy is isn't getting any type of regular at-bats, especially during the third and fourth week of spring training, that's somebody that I'm moving down. Um, I don't want to make it like a, it's an end all be all, but if I have two players who are, you know, sandwiched in ADP right next to each other, and one has been playing sporadically all spring training and the other one hasn't, I'm just going to use that in that scenario as almost like a tiebreaker. That's basically how I handle those. But like I said, there is like a, a pantheon of injuries where as soon as I hear those, I'm basically staying away, you know, uh, like I said, knee contusions, thoracic outlet syndrome, any type of sol- shoulder injuries from pitchers, I'm just completely saying, there's there are so many starting pitchers where I don't have to invest in somebody who potentially has shoulder issues. Um, other than that, though, like I said, I'm not a doctor. Um, <laughs> I mean, you you can obviously get some really good values from, you know, especially from starting pitchers where if it really is nothing or if you see like their velocity is down just because they're trying out different pitches or they're tweaking a different arm slot, there is value to be had there because, you know, the industry as a whole will suppress those, especially, you know, the road to wire blurbs and stuff coming through. But um, I, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not giving you a definitive answer. I mean, I, I account for it some, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't sway me so much so that like, I'm completely out on players just because they're missing games in spring training. Does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah. kind no, of. That's fair,
1: that's fair enough. I was just curious because everyone's got a different opinion. I was uh, just looking for yours on that one. Um, Word. One more opinion um, this year. It's a random year for, we have the world baseball classic and some mm-hmm. teams, let their players play. Some teams don't let their players play or don't want their players to play. Um, what is your approach on players that do play? Cause it ramps them up a little sooner than normal. Um, some are doing like, like I said, ramping them up. So they're doing way more work than you prefer. Like this Friday guys are pitching in their first game. They're pitching no more than anything, 20 pitches. Whereas in, you know, in a week or so they'll be pitching maybe three innings in a world baseball classic game. Um, what are you looking at for guys that play in the world baseball classic?
2: Uh, for hitters, I'm not concerned at all. So, I mean, unless a guy fractures his hand or something, you know, in and at bat, for the most part, I mean, the fatigue is so minimal and it's stretched out over such a long season. I'm not worried about that at all. From a pitcher's perspective, especially a pitcher, say like a younger pitcher who hasn't even eclipsed 200 innings in the majors yet, I'm a little concerned. Um, I'm not trying to be like, you know, just, you know, siren, you know, sirens and alarms and stuff going off, but I mean – you only have so many bullets. And we've seen with some pitchers where, like, they just get major, major fatigue. Even, like, complete stud workhorses like Adele and Patanzas, like, they get tired at the end of the season. You know what I mean? There's only so much your body can take without you having to completely shut down. Um, so, I'm not saying that I'm going to avoid some of these starting pitchers, but I am going to use this, like I said, not to, you know, rehash the same thing that I just said, but this is almost like a tiebreaker. If you have two players that are very, very close and you're trying to discern between two where you can't find any real tangible reason to pick one over the other, you might look at that and say, okay, um, this player is already ramped up. He's already throwing pitches. He's already seeing live batters. Um, I may be more apt to drafting him and then maybe looking to trade him at the trade deadline. Uh, just knowing that he has pitched kind of thing, especially if he's never done it in his season before or in his career before. Um, but I don't know, man. It's, <laughs> it's such a crap shoot. Like I'm reading right now, the, uh, the Jeff Passon book, the arm. I don't know if you've read it, but it's, it, it's absolutely incredible. And it basically just tells us that like, even now with, you know, baseball being worth billions of dollars and, and the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that we put into pitchers, we still don't really know exactly what helps and what hurts them. Uh, every single player is different. Um, I mean, if you told me Max Scherzer was going to pitch in the world baseball classic, I would say, all right, fantastic. I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to move him up or down in my rankings at all. There are other pitches where I said I would, and guess what? Those, those pitchers. Oh, fine. We just, I don't know. We just don't know, but, uh, Given the fact that I'm, like I said, not a doctor and I have very limited information that I can go off of, I mean, if it's a starting pitcher, I may just bump them down one or two spots, but nothing more more crazy than that, I don't think. What about you? What, what is your take on the World Baseball Classic? How do you approach
1: that? I love, the, I love the World Baseball Classic as a fan. I wish it was a different time of the year. I wish it was probably after the World Series so the players are ready to go. We could see them full bore. Like I'd like to see, you know, say Noah Simmergaard be able to pitch nine innings if we needed to. I would like to see the best, the best compete. Get Kershaw out there. Right. Like, if for the U.S., I'd like Kershaw to go all nine if I need him to. Give me the best we got. Yeah, um, but at the same, do you
2: think there should be some sort of like, should there be some sort of like tie-in where like if you're like an all-star, like you have to play in the World Baseball Classic?
1: yes, that's, that's the hard part. It's because that's the other thing is they're trying to make it this competition, but the best, the best if they aren't even playing. So it's. It's, it's hard. Like It's better now than it was. Most of them are now. They're trying to take pride in it. But it's it, it's tough because, like I said, is they're not even playing the whole deal. Some aren't playing in the first round, but they're on a, a roster spot for the second round. Um, it's really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the concept. I really do. Um, since they can't play in the Olympics, that's always in the summer, and that's never going to work. Um and it's not even in any the Olympics anymore, which is a travesty in itself. This is correct. Um, I mean you can watch ba-
2: you can watch Olympic badminton right now, but you can't watch Olympic baseball.
1: Yeah. Which is... yeah. don't even start at The fact that softball, <laughs> softball and baseball are out of the Olympics is just Yeah. They're gonna bring skateboarding and BMX into the Olympics. Well, like BMX, I think, is in Olympic. Yeah, don't so get be starting on this. Um yeah. but real baseball classic I think is great. Um, the pitchers are the ones that concern me just because I like watching my pitchers go slow especially when you look at the guys that pitch in the playoffs, like you look at the, like I say the Indians and the Cubs players, and now they're going to want to pitch in the world baseball classic. Or I look at guys like Johnny Cueto, who now might not because he's got visa issues and his dad's health as a Giants fan. I don't want him anywhere near the world baseball classic. Mm-hmm. So he might not end up going now, which makes me feel better. Yeah. But I've just seen how certain pitchers you've seen. It doesn't affect them, but there always seems to be one or two. It just, they never come back the same Or they start out slower, something weird happens. And there's always a couple, and it's just something weird about it. So, not a big fan of that aspect of it. The concept, love it. It's great. I love seeing the atmosphere, especially when you watch on TV when there's the the Caribbean teams or whatever down there, the Dominican and stuff. Love it. It's great. Mm. But I think there needs to be a better way to do it. It's just hard. I'm not an expert at that. I can't figure all that out.
2: There's not an easy answer. There's not.
1: Yeah, there's not. But like, I think the best option would be after the postseason, but now you're in November and December, and look at the weather situation. So what do you do? Play every game in a dome? Well, then that takes some of the fun mm-hmm. out of it. So like, you just, everything's tough. Yep. But enough of that, let's get to the big part. You have your nice old-school Devil Rays hat on. But let's talk Rays hat. Let's talk, because talk, they're not the Devil Rays anymore. They are the Rays. And they yes. had... One of the best off-seasons, in my opinion. I know not many will appreciate it the way I did. I know you liked it. It was the mm-hmm. ultimate raise off-season for a team that does not spend money. They did it perfectly. They spent the right amount of money that they like to spend on the players that fit their team. On you know Rasmus, Lomo, I like the Evaldi signing. Even Ricky Weeks has a right-handed batting lefties. Love the wilson Ramos signing. Kind of wish they got that weird, but that didn't work out. You gotta love um, of the daily on trade, and we'll start off with that one. You kind of called this a while back, saying send foresight for the Dodgers. Go for it. What do you what do you got on the, the Jose daily on trade?
2: Um, so this is the kind of like. This is what's difficult for me. I, I won't try to be as long as I was on like some other podcasts where I was talking about this. Like I've done Rays previous po- podcast this season where I we basically almost went two hours talking about the Rays, so I'll try to be a little bit more truncated just for the sake of our listeners. But um, as far as the Logan Forsythe trade, um, I initially was very skeptical and then I quickly like flipped and I'm all on board with it. I mean, if you're going to trade two years of team control for what is a very good pitch, or a very good uh, you know second base player, but he's not a transcendent player by any means, and he's going to be gone in two years. He's also older. He's on the wrong side of 30. If you trade him for a consensus top 50 prospect in baseball with six years of team control, I think you have to do that move every single time. Um, Mm -hmm. Is Logan Forsythe a great player? Yes, he's a fantastic player. He's also been injured off and on for the last three or four seasons, and I think that type of production that he gives you at second base can be uh, replaced pretty easily. Jose De Leon, however, I think is... A middle of the rotation starter right now, like I think he can actually crack Tampa Bay's rotation out of spring training. I don't think he will, but I do think that is an immensely valuable trade. And you know, Tampa is not short on arms. They have a glut of arms in the minors. They have, you know, they can go seven, eight deep as far as starting pitching goes. So that's the one area where they they do have a lot of strengths and stuff. But I mean, even if they elect to hold on to him, but that. That makes it even easier for them to trade somebody like an Alex Cobb at the trade deadline, or to trade a to Rizzi before they get too expensive in arbitration. So altogether, I just think it's a fantastic move. Um, it sucks because Logan Forsythe, especially in daily fantasy, which I know you and I both play, like he was an absolute lock against left-handed pitching leading off. Like I would literally start him every single time, just like an auto play. I'll still do that in in, in Los Angeles. Obviously, it's probably offensively a much better team. It just sucks though that he's not doing it for my race. That's that's the only qualms that I have about
1: it. Yeah, you got to, to stay up later to watch him do it for you. You have to wake up and hope he cashed. That's the only difference. Yep. yep. Um, any of the big signings you liked, um, or overall, just kind of wrap up the offseason as a whole for you as a race fan. Um, so I'm,
2: it's really difficult for me to try to separate. Like trying to be a quote unquote analyst. Like I'm not trying to sound like I'm a lot more knowledgeable than I really am. Like I started out as a fan and I just started befriending people. And then, you know, lo and behold, next thing you know, like I'm on a podcast and I get to be on other people's podcasts and talk about baseball. But like, essentially I'm still a fan. So like now that I've kind of like thrust myself into like the public sphere of like with my opinions, like I try to actually base them on facts and not emotions. So like whenever I see like a trade come through, like my Twitter timeline, my first response is to get like incredibly emotional because I have an attachment to these players, but you know, looking Looking at, at how much these trades or or these signings make sense, you know, from a financial standpoint or just from a, a team building standpoint. Like, I, I always come around and I'm like, I'll, I'll give you one example. I was really, really upset that the Rays re signed Logan Morrison, especially for the when, when you consider that a few days later, the Yankees signed Chris Carter for. more. So you mean to tell me, we could have signed a first baseman who given isn't a very good defensive player, but we could have signed a first baseman who hit 40 bombs last year, you know, led the national league in home runs. We could have signed him for $500,000 more than Logan Morrison. But then whenever I go to actually look at it, when you look at like from a wins above replacement, uh logan morrison is much much closer than carter is uh, just because he can actually handle himself at first base defensively i mean he went through a stretch last year i think it was in may where like he was basically like one for 29 it was such a bad slump that it sunk his season he was much better in the second half i still think that he can rebound nicely and like he'll have a an above average offensive season so you know for 2.5 million dollars that's barely above the league minimum so that was a super savvy deal Signing Wilson Ramos, you know, after he tears his ACL for a two-year deal. So they're going to they're gonna spend $8 million on an above-average offensive hitting catcher, which has been a black hole as far as the position goes for the Tampa Bay for years. Um, I love that move. Uh, the Colby Rasmus move, not super in love with it, not going to lie to you. There's already a glut of outfielders, even after the race traded Brandon Geyer, even after they released Desmond Jennings. Um, I'm not in love with that move, but like I said, the Jose De Leon trade, absolutely loved. Signing Ricky Weeks to be a right-handed bat against uh, lefties, which is, you know, the Rays have been looking all offseason to add a right-handed bat and to get him for, I think, $2 million. That was a steal. Um, I mean, other than that, I mean, it's just, I, I wish we had a little bit more money because there were some players that you were seeing going much, much cheaper than I, I feel like they should have. Like, the market overcorrected as far as, like, these first-base DH types. Like, we, like, if we had any more money, like, why couldn't we have signed Weeders and then had Weeders basically being the starting catcher until Ramos back and then basically have like a platoon or having one play first base and the other, you know, be a catcher. Like that would have rectified all of our problems right there. And we wouldn't even have to assign Logan Morrison. I don't know. Like there, there's situations where like, I'm, I'm really proud of the team for what they can do with such minimal resources. But I also wish that like, we had a little bit more money. Like it's my, kind of like my opinion where I like being the underdog because, you know, I grew up with nothing and I came from nothing. And so like, I can respect kind of like being scrappy like that. Cause that's kind of like, it fits my personality, but also too, like owning a professional baseball team isn't a priv- or it isn't a right. It's not something you're guaranteed. Like if you're going to do it, like, I think you should be the best owner you can possibly be And with this ownership team. Like, why are you pitching Penny? Like you, this is an investment owning a major league baseball team. Like You should be able to take losses year over year, knowing that 10 years from now, your franchise is going to be worth a lot more than it is now. Um, I didn't expect to talk about management or ownership in this, but here we are. Um, I'm happy with the offseason, to put it shortly, and I just wish we would have spent a little bit more money.
1: Yeah, I love the Ramos deal because he'll be back midseason. It's a bargain for the talent he brings to a team. Um, You will get a full season with him next year. I think that's a great deal. And if all else fails, you flip them at the All Star break next season. You get more talent. Um, right. I think that's a great move. Uh, the Ivaldi one, if he can come back healthy, it's a decent move. But if not, easily, you said you have a bunch of pitching um, already there. Uh, all in all, good. I agree. The market corrected itself so much. You, you could have probably, if you've spent a little more money, that naturally wasn't that expensive. Carter, that one I thought would have been a great fit. I really was hoping Wieders was coming there. It looked like he was coming there. And then Boris did a Boris thing. I don't know how he pulled off two years, $21 million. That was amazing.
2: Yeah. Honestly, though, seeing that figure, seeing that figure, I was optimistic that the Rays could sign him just because he was so floating out there for so long. But once I saw the 221, I, I just kind of realized like Tampa Bay wasn't really close. There's no way they were going to go over $5 no, or six million dollars a year. Like they, they they weren't close. It was just, it was just, you know, noise basically, but
1: I was, I was, I was, expecting one year for maybe seven or eight total at the most. When yeah. I saw two for 21, I was like, Oh, Scott Boris strikes again. Yeah. He's but, uh, moving on. Let's get to some of the players for the raise. Um, we'll start with the ace, the man that, um, he struggled a bit last year when he came on strong towards the end, looked like the archer of old Chris Archer. That is the beautiful, beautiful Afro that he, that he brings to the mound. Um, He's a great arm. I'm a big fan of him. Like you already said you are. Uh, like I said, struggled last year, 402 Yara, three previous years in the low threes. The Rays need him, obviously, mm. and they like him to do well because if they're not contending. And I think, I will preface this, I really think they can contend in the East at worst. Yes. A sneaky, My sneaky man. <laughs> wild card team. I'm not even joking. I like this team. Um if for some reason, they aren't continuing because this is what the team will do. He's going to be a great trade piece. I think he rebounds. I want to hear your analysis. What are you expecting from Archer this year? All
2: right. So there's a lot of stuff that needs to go into like the whole Archer like evaluation, but I'll just give you a couple like pointers really quick. So Kevin Kiermaier missed a large chunk of the season with an injury. He's the best center fielder in baseball in – that that missing piece cannot be overstated. You had Brad Miller playing almost the entire season at shortstop. He was one of the, by UZR thing like that. He was one of the worst defenders in major league baseball. So you have a, a shortstop who can't defend and you have a hodgepodge of outfielders playing center field with a bunch of fly ball pitchers. It just doesn't make sense. And the, the one thing that people are talking about, like with these race pitchers, like Drew Smiley was struggling, Chris Archer was struggling. Nobody wants to mention the defense. Like, that used to be a stalwart of this of these Rays teams was pitching and defense, and whenever you take away one half of the equation, obviously the pitching staff is going to suffer. Um, from Chris Sarcher's standpoint. I mean, he's basically a two-pitch guy. Um, once he starts utilizing his changeup a little bit more and starts, I-, I think, kind of honing his sequencing and his command just a little bit more. I mean, we're talking about minor tweaks before he's back into being, you know, considered for an Young. He has all the tools. The strikeouts were still there. The innings were still there. It was just uh, occasionally he would get hit up. And, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, like, his FIP was much lower than his ERA was. So... I expect to bounce back yeah. having a full season of Kiermaier uh, them trading for Malik Smith as like a death piece. Like, I don't think he's going to play a lot. I definitely think he's going to be like a late in the game defensive replacement for like a, say if Corey Dickerson's playing in the outfield, Colby um, Rasmus is a gold glove defender. Like, you know, even if he doesn't hit at all, they're still going to play him nearly every single day, just because like they want that defense. Uh, this, like I said, this pitching staff is deep. And just by default, just having Kiermaier back and having Matt Duffy playing shortstop over Brad Miller, I think we're going to see improvement from the staff like from top to bottom, one through five.
1: Okay. I like that a lot. Do you, um, so do you think he's back to a fantasy one or is he a fantasy two?
2: Um, I think I'm, I'm okay with him being my one. I, I wouldn't put him with that that elite tier that we were talking about earlier. I think he's just right outside there. He's one of the first pitchers that I would take right outside of that first year. Um, but if you had to, if I had to pick a favorite for somebody who's not being taken with that group to, you know, jump back into it, I think it is Chris Archer. Like I said, even amidst all of his troubles last season, the strikeouts were always there. And that's one thing that you can't teach. You can't teach somebody to be a power strikeout arm. And that's just what he is. I mean, it's, the, the 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 upside, the bounce back is so obvious here. Like I, I don't even feel like it's a sleeper pick to say that, but like I think he's going to drastically uh his his draft stock basically. I, I just think it's it's so obvious to having a full season of Kiermeyer. Like I said, all the improvements defensively, it's just it's everything's gonna culminate in him just having a fantastic season. I think it's 200 innings pitched. I think it's ten and a half K's per nine. Um, you know, hopefully the wins are gonna be there. I think the offense will be a little bit better. It, it it might be you know 12 wins, but shows on the strikeouts. I, I think it's just a phenomenal play. I really do.
1: Yeah, ten point four K per nine last year. Right now in Fantasy Pros, seventeenth pitcher off the board, sixty second overall. Not too shabby at all. If you didn't think him as your fantasy one, arm in that rotation. Alex Cobb. He was injured for most of last year. Uh, what are we expecting health wise and performance wise from Cobb? I know he's also been rumored in trade. What are we looking at for Cobb this year?
2: Um. Honestly, I kind of tempered my expectations a little bit. the The Rays pitch uh, the Rays, uh, you know, pitching coaches and stuff. They they babyed him. Obviously, he was almost two years out of baseball before he actually saw a mound again. Um, and then whenever he did come back last year, the velocity wasn't there. The control wasn't there. Um, he wasn't commanding any of his secondary or, or or you know tertiary offerings at all. Like it's just, I don't know. I I think the offseason is going to help him. I think he's going to come back and he's going to look. You know he's going to be an above average pitcher, but to be completely honest with you, I think uh, there's about like a 10 percent chance he finishes the season as a Tampa Bay Ray. I think uh, if he's anything under like a four ERA at the uh, trade deadline, he's going to be moved. And I mean, he has an expiring contract and stuff. It's it's kind of it it is what it is. Basically, I think they're going to push him a little bit more at the beginning of the season just to kind of drum up trade value, and then he's going to be off. But it's not somebody I'm looking to invest in fantasy at all. To be completely honest, which is really heartbreaking because there was a point there where he was, you know. One of the top ten pitchers in the American League, which is kind of wild to say now because that seems so far, so far, you know, removed from where he is now.
1: Yeah, in four, 2014, he was lights out. Well, lights out might be a, a strong term, but he's pretty darn close to lights out. Yeah, and, uh, and, yeah, then he gets injured, misses 2015, most of 2016. Yeah, and they babied him back, and yeah, because you said with that depth they have in the minors, you know, if he's even half decent they could still flip them if they're competitive and still replace them without a blink of an eye um moving on to the closer position um i think if they're competitive which i think the rays will be a lot of close games alex coleman um 191 era last year 37 saves you can get him late in most drafts this is sneaky good closer um Boxberger is also a very nice back-end piece for cold leagues. What do you see out of those options? Is Boxberger a threat to take some saves? How do you approach back the back-end of the Rays' bullpen?
2: Honestly, I think I think Colome is probably a top-five reserve pitcher just because uh, we did see B- Boxberger return last year, and the strikeout rate just wasn't what it was a year prior whenever he was the closer um i don't know if he's ever going to get it back to those elite levels that he was when we first traded for him with uh i think it was san diego that we got him from um call was just lights out i think he had one or two blown saves the entire season i mean he was he was contending for the league you know the uh, american league lead and saves and i don't i really don't see a reason why any of that would change i mean he's he's still a phenomenal pitcher um and there's not a ton of depth in that bullpen that could contest him at all for that spot so um you know, we always talk about like the inherent lefty bias when it comes to relievers. The Rays don't have a bunch of lefties anyway. They don't have a bunch of really good right-handed pitching. Um, the bullpen used to be a, an area of like extreme strength, and last year it was a liability. I mean, when you're running out people like Danny Farquhar and Dan- Dana Evland, and um, I mean, it's basically him, it's Boxberger, and there's a couple other decent pieces like a Javier Cedeno, who's basically a rookie at this point, but. Um, I think Colomay, obviously he has a job right now. I think he's going to hold it all season. And I think, like I said, he's going to be a top four or five uh, relief pitcher in you know the saves categories and really, really elite ratios, really good strikeout rate. And you're going to be able to get him so much cheaper than Aroldis Chapman or even Andrew Miller, who's not even technically the closer, Cody Allen is. Um, I just think it's like a really, really unique buying opportunity where you can get him so much cheaper than all these elite closers if you're drafting him in fantasy. So I, it's a move I like, and I, I'm... Like all race players there's some i'm gonna be staying away from obviously but there's just such a guys the, the the raise bias is real not from a stance like oh everybody hates my team but people just don't know about the raise they really don't people don't pay attention to this roster i mean if you really do some deep diving there are a lot of value to be had in uh in fantasy baseball drafts there really is
1: and that's why i almost didn't have you come on the podcast because i like the raise bias <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i hate I-
2: talking about them too yeah
1: I know because, like, the Colomay thing is I like sneaking him in, like the 15th or 16th round, which mm-hmm. now might not happen. But um, moving on, your infield is going to get a little shake up. You'll have your standard, uh, Longoria at third, your staple. But mm-hmm. um, now with Forsyth gone, uh, your new orange-black uh, Duffy will be at shortstop. You got him the Giants last year. Brad Miller is going to move to the second base for now. And you'll have Lomo at first. Um, the Miller Duffy combo up the middle should be a decent defensive combo, most likely. Um, what's the outlook f- uh, defensively and f- fantasy offense wise? What are you guys thinking from your your uh, infield?
2: Um, if Brad Miller hits thirty home runs again, I will eat this hat. I don't think it's something that's sustainable, even with the you know with 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 the higher power numbers that we saw last year. I mean, he had a ton of just enough home runs. I mean, everything in his offensive profile, I did a deep dive on him on one episode of Dear Mr. Fantasy, and basically everything was was slightly elevated home run to fly ball ratio. I mean, his strikeout rate was the same. You know, the the Z percentage, the O percentage, like everything like that. Like he was, he was basically doing the exact same thing, except he was happening to hit a couple more home runs. And uh, I want to be optimistic about him, but like I said, I just don't see where he made strides as far as his like his offensive profile goes he's he was essentially the same hitter who hit and i just don't think that's sustainable matt duffy however he's like the complete forgotten man um he had that really really good season in san francisco surprised a lot of people i mean he was essentially a non-prospect i believe like nobody i mean i I don't know if you miss him at all but he had a really good season and then you know we prayed for him when he was injured we saw that as a buying opportunity he's just been completely forgotten i think that's somebody who can hit for 280 or 285 you know get on base at an above average you know clip this race team was essentially like i think fourth or fifth in the majors in home runs last season but they were like 19th or 20th in on base percentage so you know we were talking about them not signing chris carter earlier but when you really think about it like all they need isn't really power it's just guys who can consistently get on base and i think that's matt duffy um I like I said, I, I I expect him to be above average in a base percentage. Maybe he only hits ten home runs, which is totally fine, but above average glove player. I mean, what more can you ask for? And he was essentially free. He was he was kind of like a throw in with that Matt Moore trade. So um I think Brad Miller offensively takes a step back. I think he's gonna be a better second baseman than he was a shortstop because he let's be honest, he couldn't have been any worse at shortstop than he was last season. Um and I mean, that's, that's basically it. I mean, Matt Duffy, from a fantasy standpoint, he's literally like the last pick of your draft, but I do think that there is a little bit of sneaky upside right there. People forgot about how good he was two years ago.
1: No, I like, I like Duffy a lot. People do forget how good he is. He's a very, very good ball player. He's not going to like the world on fire, but he's very productive and in uh, seasons in you're going to be very happy with those county stats. at worst, very good middle infielder for your ball club. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, Evan Longoria? Cause uh, people always forget about him, but he still puts up pretty productive numbers overall, But that is such a deep third base position, at least a top heavy third base position. No one ever talks about him anymore. What are your thoughts on a uh, long go season?
2: Um, so he basically, he sacrificed a little bit of plate discipline for power, which if that means he's going to hit 30 to 35 home runs every single year, I'm totally cool with that because he still takes his walks, which is fine. Um, he just reached a little bit more and that's, like I said, that's, that's a trade off I'm willing to make. Like I don't want to see Evan Longoria hitting 20 or 21 home. Runs. I can live with, you know, 10 points off of his on base percentage. If that means that he's, you know, hitting in the middle of the lineup and driving in hundred or 110 runs. Um, it was nice last year because like after two consecutive seasons of seeing like decreased offensive performance, like to see him rebound like that, and, you know, just hitting the the ball harder. It wasn't like he had, like, a super elevated home run to fly ball ratio. He, he just was making harder contact. He barreled more balls. Like, if you look on StatCast, like, his barrel percentage was, like, I'm not sure the exact numbers I don't have it in front of me. But just a really good offensive player. I mean, I think in two to three years, we moved from third to first because his defense has, you know, gradually deteriorated each of, the, like, the last four years, I think. Um, He used to be one of the racemen in the league, but not so much anymore. But... Um, I think think looking at him from like a fantasy standpoint, I think he's essentially a lock for 25 home runs. I think this raise offense as a whole is going to be improved. So I think it's likely that he's, he can touch, he can get very, very close to hundred RBI. Um, I, I think a hundred runs scored is a little generous for him. I think he's gonna be more like 85 to 90, but um, I mean, I'm totally drinking the Kool-Aid when it comes to this race team. Like, I do think they're going to be markedly improved. And if you look at all the projection systems from Dakota to Zips to Steamer, they all like this team as well. Like, they're all seeing what we're seeing, basically, is like, this is going to be a team that's going to take a step forward this year just from a pitching and defensive standpoint. And if the offense decides to come along too, like, this might be a sneaky team that can win 90 or 91 games and get into that second wild
1: card. See, I'm not far off. My thoughts is good. Uh-huh. Yeah, Moise and Patico, dude, we got it. I'm telling you, I like what they built here. Like, you don't be flashy to win baseball games. That's the beautiful thing about baseball. Um, Your outfield—you mentioned them. We'll get to one name in a minute. Let's talk about the other ones first (laughs) to keep the the excitement down. I want to keep him to his own special segment for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Kiermaier, Sousa Jr., Erasmus—even maybe a little Malik Smithy. You traded for. It's an interesting outfield. Good players. All a little different, but similar, if that makes sense. Um, Kiermaier is the best of the bunch, in my opinion. I think you can agree there. I think a lot to expect out of him this year. Um, defensively, I already mentioned, best center fielder in baseball, potentially, if not the best. Um, one of the best. Uh, David Kerr might argue that Mark is the best. Um, but I think his offense is going to go another step up. Uh, What are you expecting on your outfield within Kiermaier, Sousa, Jr., Rasmussen this year? All
2: right, so let's start with the players that I don't like first. So with Steven Sousa, I, man, trading, that whole trade, I don't even want to address it, but I think Steven Sousa is what he is. He had the second worst strikeout in all of baseball last season. I don't think people realize this. The second worst in all of baseball. He cannot make contact whenever he swings. And I don't think that's something that minor mechanical tweaks can fix. I think it is what it is. Either you can put the, the bat to the ball or you cannot. And I just don't, I don't see what type of seismic shift he's going to make to where he can be like a really serviceable offensive player. He's an okay defender, but he just cannot hit. So Steven Souza, from an, uh, from a fantasy standpoint, I'm kind of out on from a real life standpoint, I think he's a slightly above replacement level player. And that's, it that's basically it uh Ray's totally whiffed on that trade um we talked about Malik Smith I don't think he breaks camp in the majors I think that he is like the first guy I think he's like a 26 man on the roster where anytime a player goes down he is the dude that gets called up I think uh once rosters expand like he's He's always going to be like the late inning defensive replacement. I, I think the hit tool still has a long ways to go, but he is a terror on the base pass. I could be wrong. They could break camp with him in the majors, but I would be really, really surprised just because how they like to manipulate surface time and stuff. But um, that's a bat that still has a long ways to go. He's essentially speed only right now and doesn't make a ton of contact. So Malik Smith really isn't in the equation for me. Uh, Colby Rasmus, like I said, gold glove defender. He can occasionally hit home runs. One of the streakiest players in baseball outside of Justin Upton can be the best player in baseball for a two-week stretch and then literally be one of the worst players in baseball for a two-week stretch. I don't really know. I mean, it's such a weird signing. Like I said, I, I think it all, like, it, it trickles back to them just wanting to have a ton of, like, defensively talented players um, in case, like, a Meyer goes down like he did last season. But I don't see... I don't see Colby Rasmus making any type of gains offensively. Like if you were already struggling as an offensive hitter and then you go to Tampa Bay, an organization that historically has struggled to develop any type of like impact hitters outside of Evan Longoria in the last 10 years. I don't really see that changing for you. Um, There is another outfielder though, that I'm actually particularly fond of and you know him too. I basically tweet about him every single day. Um, Corey Dickerson, my boy, C Dick, Man, he let me down last year. Like I, I thought he was going to be the truth, and I knew that he was coming from Coors Field to Tropicana, which obviously suppresses offense a ton. But uh, the level of his struggles was greatly higher than I had expected. Um, I mean, let's let, let's look. I, I I do have like some some glimpses of hope for him this season, just because like he showed up to workouts twenty five pounds lighter. I mean, he's been working with a uh, you know renowned hitting instructors and stuff all season long. And I, I do think that (laughs) I hope that there's this scenario where Corey Dickerson is like this 30 home run hitting, even if he's only a platoon bat, he's on the long side of the platoon. Like he's, he can mash, right? you know what I mean? So I do have a couple interesting stats really quick though. So, you know, he switched time last year between playing left field and playing DH as a DH. He hit 216, 263, 455, which is admittedly terrible, especially for somebody who was only hitting, right? That's terrible. Uh, he had a two fifty, or I'm sorry, two forty-two ISO with thirteen homers and two hundred and forty-seven plate appearances as a DH, but in two hundred and eighty left field. So meaning he was obviously playing the field and hitting at the same time. He hit two seventy-five, three twenty-six, four ninety-two. That's obviously fantastic. So what are we seeing here? We're we're basically cementing the idea that being a DH is a skill not playing in the field and only hitting and, and having that level of focus, like it is something that you have to be good at. You can't just assume if you take a player out of the field and expect them to DH full-time that they're going to be good at it. The, you, know, you have to mentally engage the entire game, and some players are good at it and some players are not. I, obviously, Corey Dickerson isn't very good at it. If there is some way, I hope it's not through injuries, but if there is some way that he can start hitting at a consistent level, or even if he just starts the season as the DH, which he is slotted to do right now, acclimate himself more to it as opposed to essentially being benched versus lefties midseason last year and then being relegated to a DH role. I think if he goes into it this year, knowing that he's a DH, that that is his role and just focus on hitting. I, I, I'm i such a homer when it comes to him. He's my favorite player. But I do think that there is a scenario where he can hit home runs. He can bat 270 if he's not hitting against lefties. And I mean, I think this could be a really, really useful player. And from a fantasy edge, um, I know this isn't a fantasy-specific podcast, but I love fantasy, but just from a, a fantasy standpoint, in daily leagues, he's going to be essentially free, where if you know that he is starting, he's probably going to back clean up against right-handed pitching. I mean, take him in the 20th, 22nd round type of that. He's essentially going to be free. This is a dollar player at the end of your draft, and I I don't know. I, I, I still believe in the power. I still think that this dude can hit, and I think one year away... From you know, from being ripped from the warm confines that is Coors Field, the hitter's paradise that is course Field, I think he's going to figure it out. What do you
1: think? I totally agree. Um, first off, yeah, I, it is proven that the DH thing is uh, it is definitely a skill. There's been many guys that have tried it and have failed miserably. Uh, you talk to guys like Big boppy and Frank Thomas and Edgar Martinez, they would spend. Many, many times in between innings, like hitting off a tee just to stay fresh. You can't just sit there in a dugout and then come and hit again. There's a process to it. Um, it, It's a different animal. Um, I think he'll figure it out. It's just a mindset. He has to find his routine, Uh, and just he maybe has to sit and work with someone on it. Once he becomes comfortable in that role, the hitting is there. The power will come back because it is there. he is definitely a 25-plus home run guy. He's still young. The ball will fly. Think about the, what, 13 games he'll play in Yankee Stadium. The ball will fly out of there. The other ballparks, you know, Toronto, Baltimore, the ball flies out of. There's He's going to have his fun. Uh, yeah. Corey Dickerson will we'll find his time. He said <laughs> it best in DFS. We, we talked a lot in our little private chat. We played him a lot because he was so cheap. I can't remember what the Always. cheapest price was in DFS, like what twenty five hundred or something.
2: Yeah, I mean he was a min. He was a min price player most of the time, and like I said, if he's playing, he it's because he's going against a right handed pitcher, which is four or five, sometimes six days out of the week, and you know he has the platoon advantage. and He's batting in the heart of the lineup. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you if you do play da- daily fantasy this year, guys, like one thing I would encourage you to do is just really check out splits. You know, go to Fangraphs. Type in a player's name. Go to splits. You can check out season, career, anything like that, and see what a player does well. Like, whenever you're looking at players, like you're always trying to figure out exactly what they do well. Like Corey Dickerson can hit for power against right-handed pitching, especially in favorable ballparks. Like, so if you're going to play daily fantasy, that's the type of player that you're going to look forward to. Because you know, considering the fact that they are kind of like a DH and they are a platoon bat, they don't play all the time ownership percentages and the amount of playing time that a player gets does affect their price in daily fantasy. So if I don't play every single day, if I'm Corey Dickerson, I'm actually going to be cheaper. Even though whenever I do play my offensive production is the same as a player who plays every single day, I'm still naturally going to be cheaper. So um, you're going to have to have me on. We're going to have to do like a daily fantasy, like preview show or something like that, where we talk daily fantasy. Cause uh, for the last two years, I have not missed a single day of playing daily fantasy. I have played for about two and a half years straight. So,
1: uh, we'll, we'll definitely
2: see, have to get on that, too, is play some
1: Daily Fantasy. Yancy, I will have you on any you want to come on. You know that. Yeah, um, sweet. Next up, you mentioned it, uh, the Rays, because what they do so well, I kind of prefaced it. You've kind of prefaced it. With their offseason, they built some more of their, their minor league system. Their prospects are just locked and loaded, especially their pitchers. They have some bats, too. I'm not as... Familiar with their bats, I did brush up on their pitching recently when the DeLeon trade happened. You know them all. I know you're very giddy over some of those pitchers. Mm-hmm. Give us a give us a brief cliff notes version of what we get to look forward to. Will any of them impact us this year? Any of them worth stashing for this season, for dynasties? Give us a little cliff notes on their prospects.
2: Yeah, just really quickly, Jose De Leon is a consensus top 30 uh, prospect in baseball. You are going to see him this year. I question whether he breaks camp uh, with them in the major league squad. Uh, Some people seem to think that he will, but the very latest, he'll be a June call up and he is a great pitcher. Um, Don't listen to all the people who are talking about how the Dodgers were down on him. I do think that he is going to be a very serviceable pitcher where like his downside is like a middle of the rotation starter. And his upside is he could be a number two with just fantastic ratios. Changeups amazing. Uh, Brent Honeywell is like, like the most curious player to me. Like he throws a screwball and he also can like touch 95 really an interesting profile from a pitcher standpoint, because there's only a handful of pitchers in the last 10 years who've thrown a screwball in the majors. Um, he's close. I don't think we see him this year though. I think that feels more of like a 2018 ETA, but that's another guy that it's in the top 100 that you want to keep a lookout on. Um, dynasty drafts, like I've seen him actually go pretty early. I think there's a lot of people that are high on him just because like his, his arsenal, he, I mean, he throws five pitches and like I said, he can touch 95, 96. Um, from a hitter standpoint, Willie Adamas, he is an elite defender, absolutely elite. He's the Rays' highest ranked prospect, even higher than Jose De Leon. Um, I do think we might see him at some point this season, definitely next season Um, from a fantasy standpoint. I mean, it's not really somebody that I'm targeting just because he's not going to hit for a ton of power, but he does make a lot of contact. Um, I'd like to think of more as like a, uh, I don't know who's, who's a current shortstop right now. Who's like an elite defender and just gets on base a ton. It's kind of hard to think about like offhand, but like, like somebody who hits for like a high average, maybe like a Jose Iglesias, right? Like Jose Iglesias is like phenomenal, yeah. but like he never hits for power. You know what I mean? Um, but Adamas is another thing to look out for. Uh there's a couple like Lesby, like the first baseman, um, who doesn't really hit for a ton of power? He's kinda like James Loney Light, which I don't know why we keep gravitating towards those type of first baseman who don't hit for power. <laughs> like I'm I am old school in that sense. We're like, I want my first baseman to hit for power. Like, why do we keep getting like these soft hitting like fifteen home run first base guys? Like, I hate that. Like that that stuff just drives me crazy. Um If you go by uh, Baseball Prospectus, they have four Rays in the top 100. If you go by Baseball America, I think they have five. Um, Only one of them, Jose de Leon, I think we're going to see this year. So, like, he's like a late, you know, the very back end of your draft, you want to take a fire on him, I'm, like, totally all for it. But that's basically it.
1: And um, we mentioned there's been a lot of talks of trades. We said Archer could go at the deadline if they're out of it. You think Cobb goes probably no matter what if he's having a decent year anything else you see kind of possibly happening with the race? Um, I don't for
2: the record, I don't think Archer goes just because that's one of the most, uh, team friendly contracts in all of major league baseball. That is an insanely good contract. I mean, they have him under control, I think like through 2021. And I mean, it's, it's under market value by a lot. So that's one of the best contracts in baseball. They're probably not going to move him unless they're blown away. Um, I, I do think Cobb goes, I think Odorizzi is a real, has a real chance to be moved. Um, Logan Morrison was signed to a one-year deal. That's somebody that they can move. And then, like we mentioned, Nate Eovaldi, we signed him to a two-year contract, but it's only for $4 million. So basically, we're paying for him to rehab this year. hes I'm not sure exactly how long he's removed from Tommy John surgery, but uh, it's been a while now. So if we start seeing him to where he is actually seeing live batters in the majors, that's another contract could potentially be moved to. Um, Ricky Reeks, uh, <laughs> say that twice fast. Ricky Weeks, not Ricky Reeks. Mm-hmm. Ricky Weeks... <laughs> Ricky Weeks will probably get moved. Any of those, you know, any of the, 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 the roster, the non-roster invitees that you see that they might call up to the majors or whatever, like a lot of those guys are going to be moved. Um, this is a really weird season where like, I think the Rays are going to be competitive. And then right up until the all-star break, even if they're only a handful of games out, like you still might see the moving pieces just because like that, that's how this team has to operate given the financial constraints that they have. But um, I do expect this team to compete. I will say that I haven't made an official prediction yet. I do like them to contend for that second wild card in the American League. And I want to pin them somewhere between like 88 and 91 wins. I think that's like a realistic expectation for them.
1: I love it. I love it. We're on the same page. We're on the same page. If the
2: we got to stop agreeing so much. Well,
1: well then our <laughs> romance can't. Continue. It just won't work anymore. No. Nope. Okay well there's our raised talk we'll have one more thing before we wrap this up since you do your your fun pop goes your world podcast and people i recommend i recommend listening to it it's a lot of fun uh, what's your co-host name again on that one uh, that's
2: Chris McBrien. Yeah, he and I first—he was actually the original like godfather of Dear okay. Mr. Fantasy. He decided to step away to do something different, and then he was gracious enough to ask me to co-host that with him. You know, he's a little bit older than I am. He's a Gen Xer. I'm a millennial, so like we kind of like play on like that generational dynamic. And I mean, we talk about everything, dude. If it's Star Wars one week, then we'll talk about the Oscars, or we'll talk about rap music, or it's a lot of fun. I mean, he's a lot more polished and like poised as like a a radio kind of guy than I am. Obviously, you can tell listening to me. <laughs> But uh, it's just, it's so much fun, dude. It really is like a fun premise for a show. But yeah, that's a, another shameless plug for my, for my podcast. Yeah.
1: No, I will Yeah, say, people need to listen to it, It's like he was saying. It's one week, it's the Oscars. The next week, it's 80s sitcoms. And then it's, you know, best music of so this generation or this. And then they always have a segment where they pick on Yancy. can you figure out this movie or this title? Because yeah. he's the one that has no clue of what took place in this generation. You know, it's, normally it's, it's no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's awesome. I get a kick out of it, and it's usually like a 40-minute deal. But what I wanted to do, before we wrap it up, since this is a baseball podcast, what are your top five baseball movies, Yance?
2: Top five? Man, that's tough. Uh, if I had to like... Th- yeah, I know. I, I, I put mine down, and it was tough. So let's, what are your top five? While I think about them, let's rattle down your top five, and then I'll, I'll have something ready for you.
1: Yeah, I'll go in reverse order. It's number five, A League of Their Own. Mm-hmm. Number four, sandlot number three field of dreams and the top two i can understand if people go back and forth it was very tough but they're the two most quotable movies i've ever had well not ever but close number two bull durham number one major league and Mm -hmm. i can see how people could flip those yeah but what do you have
2: so i know a league of their own is in my top five i don't know where it Shakes down, basically. Um, Sandlot, that was one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid. So that's probably like four or number three. Um, Bang the Drum Slowly came out in 1973. It's kind of like a, I don't know, like a cult classic. Like it doesn't get a lot of pub. Like when you see people talking about uh, baseball movies and stuff, like it never gets mentioned. Um, Moneyball, kind of like a recent thing. I don't know if in 15 years we're going to be talking about Moneyball like as highly as we do now, but I love the hell out of that movie when I went and seen it in theaters. Um, and it's, it's still really rewatchable, even though it's like highly fictionalized. Um funny story you mentioned major league I, for years that we have done these podcasts together with uh, you know with Chris McBrien he, they every single week they would throw in little like jokes and stuff about major league and little things like you know they don't call him the best caller man on radio for nothing you know like and I would never get these references and then finally they're like like will you please watch this freaking movie and so maybe oh, 6 man. months ago I finally watched it and what? it is yes I know it's so bad it is so Uh-oh. bad yeah, 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 I went, I went too long, but I finally watched it, and man, it is a masterpiece. Isn't? I probably watched it six times since then. It, it's it gold. is a fant, it's a fantastic. It's probably my favorite. It
1: is my favorite. I have, I have, a, I have a JoJo doll. Yeah, <laughs> a little Jogu doll. I, I'm waiting to get, I'm waiting to get shelving to put behind me here to put it on for my podcast. Oh yeah, yep. it's amazing. Yeah, no, I made my wife watch it to me, like, watch it with me when we were dating in college, like, the first, like, three months we were dating. I, I said, you have to watch this movie, because if you can't sit and watch this, I don't know if we can be together.
2: I don't know if it's going to work out, yeah. I, dude, I was so skeptical yeah. about how much I would actually enjoy it, but it is a it is a kooky, really funny movie, and it's, like I said, super rewatchable, so I'm, I'm totally on board with that. It's probably my number one. I mean, I love Field of Dreams, too, but it's it's a different kind of love, like, that's like a, an overtly corny movie, but like I'm actually okay with it being corny, if that makes sense.
1: Like, Yes. yes, Men, there's nothing wrong with some corniness in your life. Remember that. Word. Yes, the- sir. Well, Yance, this, this has been an honor and a privilege, and mm-hmm. I appreciate it. Likewise. Uh, uh, we will definitely, definitely do this again. Some great, great information. I uh, know people enjoy this. I don't have to say, I hope, I know they will. Um, yeah, there was a ton of information. Man, I learned stuff on this podcast. That was outstanding. Um, any final words?
2: Um, no, just thank you for having me on. It's really hard for me to keep my responses short. And, uh, I think we came in just at an hour, which is like a really big deal for me talking about the raise and shit. Cause like I normally I'm, like I said, I'm going to go for like two hours, but, uh, I have to hop on another podcast here in just a minute. But again, thank you for having me on. And, like, I'm not saying this just to be polite. Like, anytime you want to have me on, like, I love doing this stuff, and I will do it every single time. So just make sure you hit me up.
1: Oh, you know I will because I can talk sports all day. We do it anyways in a chat room. We might as well record it for everybody else, right? Correct. Um, There you go. So, people, this was Yancey Eaton. You can check him out on Twitter, at Yancey Eaton. Check out his podcast, Dear Mr. Fantasy, and Pop Goes Your World, both really good stuff. If you like this fantasy advice – it's on Dear Mr. Fantasy, and if you want his other pop information, pop goes your world. Again, Yancy, thanks a lot. Everybody, this was Bench with Bubba, Episode 22, Race Talk, Fantasy Baseball. Thanks for joining us. We will catch you guys next time.